Again, good morning, everyone. My name is Rodney Holmes. I'm part of the uh, Adams Community Group. Today, I will be reading to you all from Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. If you want to follow along, I'll give you a little bit to open your Bibles and get there. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Church, I have read to you again from Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. May God have a blessing to the readers here and endures of his word. Amen. Thank you, Hot Rod. Hey, real quick, before we jump in, I want to start with this. Um, so we are about eight months old, a church plant out of Redeemer Midland. But within that, we are part of a church planting network called the Redeemer Network, which is a bunch of churches out of various other Redeemer churches in West Texas and Central Texas. Together, we uh, pull our resources to train and equip uh, church planners and, and resource other churches. And today in San Angelo, there is launching in about 20, 22 minutes, uh, Redeemer San Angelo. And so we're really excited about that. We're excited when other gospel-centered churches plant in the area. And so before we jump in, um, can we just pray for our brothers and sisters in San Angelo that um, God would be big there this morning, that the gospel would get established in, in San Angelo, that that church would have a long and fruitful ministry here in West Texas. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for my brothers that are planting that church there in San Angelo. Lord, I pray that you would bless Redeemer San Angelo this morning. Lord, I pray that through their faithfulness, Lord, through the ministry of the gospel, that you would call many sons and daughters into your family. Lord, I ask that you would bless them this morning. Lord, just thank you for their diligence in, in preparing and getting ready to plant. Lord, may you establish them and establish many churches in and through the ministry of Redeemer San Angelo. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen and amen. Okay, so my name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. Uh, if you're new, we use the English Standard Version. Uh, if you need a Bible, we can get you one. Um, if you're new, if you take a moment and fill out the Connect card, we'd love an opportunity to connect with you. So I think I've told you all before, uh, but if you're new or maybe you've forgotten, let me remind you, I really love to read. Um, I don't read a lot 
of different genres, though. I pretty much stick to the same basic genres. I read a lot of biographies and autobiographies about my favorite musicians or other rags-to-riches type stories. Currently, I'm reading a book called Shoe Dog, which is about the founder of Nike, who basically built a multi-billion dollar shoe empire with a $50 loan from his dad. Um, I read a lot of books about presidents, history, specifically World War II history or Southwest history or stuff about Native Americans. What I've learned is once you get to your mid-30s, you have to make a decision. You have to decide whether you're going to get really into smoking meats or reading books about World War II. So I went the history route. Um, Yeah, thank you. Then I read a lot of stuff for church and theology and other things of that nature. I don't really read a lot of fiction unless I'm bribed to read a lot of fiction. Like you could say, hey, we're starting a book club and I'd love to hang out. I'd read your fiction book if you could couple that with a hangout. Um, But I do try to read one classic every single year and it's usually a short one because frankly I get really bored and I'd rather watch a Christmas carol than try to figure out what Charles Dickens is saying in his old English way of writing. Yeah, some of you agree with me. (laughs) Several years back I read a book called The Hiding Place. It was this autobiography by a woman named uh, Corey Ten Boom. Her family lived in the Netherlands during both world wars Her and her family were devout Christians, and during World War II with the Nazi occupation uh, and their attempt to exterminate all the Jews, the Ten Boom family would use their home uh, to help Jewish men and women escape uh, Nazi-occupied Holland. Uh, They would build these secret hiding places and underground storage areas in their house, hence the name of the book, The Hiding Place. They'd hide these people in closets and and whatnot, and they would try to arrange safe passage for them out of the country. Ultimately, they were caught, and along with their Jewish friends, they were sent to these concentration camps for, for a few years until the Allies would win the war. The thing I found really compelling throughout the book, uh, the Tin Boom family felt that they were doing the will of God. They felt like they had been given a clear mission from God, and they weren't going to compromise. They even had a chance to recant and confess at one point to save themselves, and they didn't. They remained steady and faithful in the presence of some extreme and severe opposition. They were steady and faithful even at the risk of their own lives. But the Ten Booms aren't the only example. They're not the first example, and Lord willing, they certainly won't be the last example of people to stand firm on the promises of the gospel and on the Great Commission. One of the most famous stories in the last several decades is about a man named Jim Elliott. Um, He and a team of five other dudes would go down to Ecuador in the 1950s to evangelize a group of people who had never been reached The people they were trying to reach were considered extremely violent and extremely dangerous to outsiders, but the team would go anyways, feeling like they had been called by God to go. They made some contact. Shortly after their initial contact, they were killed by the uh, warriors in this village. All five of these men on this team died serving the Lord. Elliot's journal was recovered. 
And in it, he had written Luke 9, 24. And it says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then he has this famous quote. Uh, This is attributed to Jim Elliott. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Meaning, you can give up your own life for following and serving Jesus because you are going to lose your life eventually, right? We're all going to die at some point. I don't want to cast any dispersion, but it's true. We're all going to die at some point. And you can gain your salvation and eternal life in Christ by giving up your life to follow Christ. And that you can never lose. Later, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, would return with a team to those very people that had killed her husband. And she spent two years as a missionary there among them in Ecuador. And her and her team, they established a church and a ministry that is still in place today. What an amazing testament to grace and forgiveness. And I want to place this in front of you this morning. How far are you willing to go? How much are you willing to sacrifice? How much are you willing to give up for the sake of Christ? If Christ calls you overseas to do some overseas ministry, are you willing to go? Here's an even more extreme question. If Christ calls you to stay in Odessa for the rest of your life for the sake of the gospel, are you willing to do that? Some of you are already like, please, God, no, hear my prayer. Are you willing to count the cost for the sake of following Christ? Man, I think it's easier for us to imagine some big things like following God to the ends of the earth. But what if God is leading you to go knock on your neighbor's door? What if God is leading you to go to your coworker and talk about Christ with your neighbor or your coworker? What if He's leading you to forgive somebody and forgive them again and forgive them again? Man, it's easy sometimes to think, yeah, we would risk our lives for Jesus. It's easy to think that we would live boldly for Jesus and live dangerously for Jesus. And man, if I'm honest, sometimes we're really not all that safe for Jesus. I want to look at this text this morning and show you exactly what's at stake in how you answer that question of Christ calling you to go and Christ calling you to do. But before we jump in, we need to pray. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts to uh, what he's trying to teach us this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, may we see the truth in the scriptures this morning, Lord, that um, we're not beyond the scope of redemption, Lord, that you do still call and use people today to reach the world So, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to be fully dependent on you. Lord, help us to lay down our wants, our desires, our pride, our egos, anything else that is hindering us from seeing you crucified, resurrected, and glorified, Lord. Be with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. 
it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Okay, last week we saw Jesus rejected at Nazareth, uh, which was his hometown. So at the end of verse 6, we see the text telling us that he left Nazareth, probably for the last time, and he went to other villages to teach in the other villages. This week, he gathers the 12 disciples together, and he sends them out in teams of two. Last week's text, it says that Jesus is amazed by the unbelief of the people. We can assume that there's probably some level of sadness, some level of disappointment in Jesus, because disappointment is a real human emotion, and Jesus is a real human man. But Jesus, though likely sad at the unbelief of his hometown unfaithful, knows that he has been sent to the earth as God in flesh to continue the work of rescue and redemption. So Jesus is sending these guys out. They have been in an extended period of like discipleship, of learning, of training. They are called disciples, as are all Christians, because a disciple, by definition, is a learner. So they have been learning from Jesus. But now it's time to get their feet wet. Jesus, with an eye on the cross, with an eye on the resurrection, with an eye on his ascension, knows the work of redemption doesn't stop when he is no longer physically present in bodily form. So he trains and he equips his disciples for the continuation of ministry when he ascends into heaven. We see in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit comes on the scene and indwells believers in Jesus, thus empowering them for many things in the faith, including the work of ministry. These disciples, with the exception of the one who would betray Jesus, would work and train to equip others, following the example of their Lord and Master, Jesus. They're training and equipping people to fulfill the great commission given by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. So the mission of the local church, in some sense, is at its genesis. It's at the beginning here with the sending out. Now, the disciples aren't going out planting churches, establishing churches, uh, because that doesn't happen, that doesn't start happening until Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. But this training ground is the beginning. This training ground is the beginning of the work of the local church. And thankfully, Jesus is still ruling and reigning. Jesus is still sovereign and in control, even today. Jesus doesn't ascend into heaven hoping that the church would get it right when he wasn't here. Jesus gave his disciples a blueprint for reaching people. Jesus gave his disciples the plan for ministry, and that is the local church. And we are still operating today with that same set of instructions. So Jesus has been training these guys, but now it's time for these guys to put in the work. So here's something to consider in light of this. How many of us just attend church and never actually apply the things that are talked about? How many of us take the posture of a consumer? Do you come in week after week after week and hear the message of Jesus and hear about the mission of Jesus and do nothing with it? 
Are you an active participant of the gospel, of the work of ministry of Jesus, or do you just spectate? James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then in verse 18 it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The Christian faith is not idle. It isn't works-based salvation. However, when you understand the depths of your sin, when you understand the depths of your depravity, when you understand exactly what you have been saved from, and when you couple that with an understanding of how sinful your heart is and how sinful the world is, why wouldn't you want to be an active participant with Jesus in his mission? Man, when Christ saves someone, you have been adopted by God. You have an inheritance as a son or as a daughter with Christ. Therefore, you have now been invited into the family business. The invitation from Jesus is to follow in his likeness. It's not to sit by and consume. It's to go and die. Listen, can I go on a little rant here? I'm going to take a a little coffee break before I get into this. I get frustrated with all like the Christianese and churchianity and Bible Belt culture. <laughs> it, uh, it makes church and faith and following Jesus sound like, hey, this is what I can get out of it. I heard a guy say to me one time in this town and not that long ago that the preaching in the church where he attended wasn't anchored in the Bible at all, but his kids loved the kids' ministry, so that is where they went. Or another guy was like, yeah, I like the music. I go there because I like the music. I'm not all that meaningfully connected to anybody else, but we go once or twice a month. So let me ask you this. This is audience participation. Is it okay to have your preferences? Are cool kids' youth and youth ministries bad in and of themselves? Is having good music that glorifies God important? But if that is the metric that we're using to pick the church we attend... If we're not at all connected to the body of Christ, that is a big-time problem. Just like the way we approach the Bible, where we can't pick and choose the parts we like and discard the rest, the Scriptures are clear about all aspects of our faith journey, including church and including living out the Christian life. When you treat your church like a fast-food restaurant— we might as well call it McChurch. I'm trademarking that. <laughs> the call from Jesus is to be like Jesus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost by becoming a servant. We're called to love and serve others, not show up and consume. And that is really hard for our Western minds to grab a hold of. 
But what the Christian faith teaches us is that when we relinquish our desires as our primary motivator, and I'm not saying having desires is wrong, but as Christians we need the desires to be the things of God first and foremost. When we relinquish our desires as our primary motivator, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we die to ourselves and our sinful desires, there is life and there is life abundantly. Rant over. So we go. We go out. Jesus sends these guys out, and from the looks of things, they appear really ill-equipped. They've got no food. They've got no money. Their pets' heads are falling off. If you're in the 35-plus crowd, you love that joke. Um, This is the epitome of traveling lightly. This is not first-class accommodations. Essentially, Jesus is telling these disciples, you don't use your ministries to gain a platform. You're not in ministry. Your ministry calling from Jesus is not there for you to show off. It's not there for a pretense. They are to be wholly dependent on God, who is their provider. James Edwards says, True service to Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends, despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. They must trust him alone who sends them. Little provisions require big faith in God to meet your needs. And listen, you don't have to be some like super elitist, super Christian for Christ to use you. Honestly, the super Christian doesn't even exist because we are all so very sinful. Even the best among us are sinful to our very core. But because of the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, believer in Christ, you have everything you need to go and share the good news of the gospel. If you are a person dedicated to God, if you are a person believing in Jesus, meditating on his word, diligent in prayer, you are equipped for every good work in Christ. So Jesus gives these simple instructions to his disciples. Pick it up in verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So these are pretty simple instructions. If you show up and they welcome you, stay. Stay until the work is done. Don't look for a nicer place. Don't dishonor their kindness. Be present in their home. Live life together in community. If they don't receive you, move on. This is the equivalent of a bunch of short-term mission trips. When Jesus tells them to go, the plan is that they're going to come back. When Jesus tells them to shake the dust off their sandals, this is symbolic in the Jewish world of people disassociating with other people's paganism. And they're shaking off the dust as a warning to the people of God's coming judgment. This is what one commentator calls a prophetic mercy. The person proclaiming the gospel is leaving a sign of the hearer's personal responsibility and their coming judgment. I want this to be both a source of encouragement to you as well as a warning. You will share your faith with people. You will share the gospel with people. 
You will invest time and energy into people for the sake of Christ and for the sake of their souls. And sometimes they will reject you. Here's a couple things I'll say about that. Number one, praise God that we are not responsible for saving anyone's soul. That's the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. I'd also say this. It's okay to feel emotions. Emotions are given by God as an expression of God's nature and character. But don't be ruled by your emotions. That's for a different sermon. Um, It's okay to feel disappointed. It's okay to feel let down, especially when you're rejected. But keep in mind, you are in really good company because Jesus was despised and rejected. We get to count it all joy when we suffer for the sake of the gospel because Christ understands. Here's the other thing I would say. All you are responsible for is your obedience. We can plant the seeds of gospel truth into the lives of people, but ultimately that's all we can do. Love them, speak the truth in love to them, pray for them, but we are not responsible for regenerating their hearts. That's been a hard one for me as a parent. I can love my kids. I can try to love them in the way that Jesus loves them. I can pray for them. I can encourage them in the Lord, but I can't save them. I want to, but I can't. The Lord will one day, and I'm confident in that, but all I'm responsible for is faithfulness to the Lord and how I raise my kids. I say all that to say, there are times when you will be rejected because of your association with Christ. Let's look at what happens with these disciples. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick and healed, and healed them. They anointed many with, who were sick and healed them. So the disciples obeyed. They went out and preached the gospel. They went out and healed people. They cast out demons. They went out as servants. They went out as representatives of Jesus. They didn't compromise on their message, even if it meant rejection. They were courageous in the face of opposition. May that be an example for us. The message is a faith in Jesus demonstrated by the repentance of sins. Repentance means turning away from something. There was a man in the 1600s, he was a Puritan man by the name of Thomas Watson. He wrote a book called Doctrine, and in that book he had a section on repentance. He said repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. In that book he gave us what is called the, uh, the ingredients of, of true repentance. I'm going to read these. All of these are directly from Thomas Watson, so not original with me. So if you have an issue with it, you can take it up with Thomas Watson. His email address is mark at redeemerchurchodessa.org. So take it up with him. Um, I want to share this all with you. As I'm reading these ingredients, I want you to consider if you've truly repented and if you've placed your faith in Christ. So number one, ingredients of true repentance, the side of sin. A person comes to themselves and clearly views their lifestyle as sinful. If a person fails to see their sin, 
they are rarely moved to repent. Number two, sorrow for sin. We need to feel the nails of the cross in our soul as we sin. Repentance includes godly grief and holy agony. The fruits of repentance will be expressed in genuine, anguishing sorrow over the offense itself and not just the consequences. So the 2021 translation is this. Are you sorry that you did it or are you sorry that you got caught? This is proved true by the ongoing actions that it produces. So number three, the confession of sin. The humble sinner voluntarily passes judgment on themselves as they sincerely admit to the specific sins of their heart. In Scripture, there are seven benefits of confession. Confession gives glory to God. Confession uh, is a means to humble the soul. Confession gives release to a troubled heart. Confession purges out sin. Confession endures Christ to the soul that needs atoning. Confession makes a way for forgiveness. And confession makes a way for mercy. So number four, there's shame for sin. Repentance causes a holy bashfulness. Sin makes us shamefully naked and deformed in God's eyes and puts Christ to shame. Christ, the one who took the scorn of the cross on himself. Number five, the hatred of sin. We must hate our sin to the core. We must hate sin more deeply when we love Jesus more fully. Repentance begins with the love of God and ends with the hatred of sin. Tolerating sin is a willful leap toward committing sin. True repentance loathes sin deeply. And finally, number six, turning from sin and returning to the Lord. This implies a notable change. We are called to turn away from all of our sins, not just the obvious ones or the ones that create friction with others. And repentance isn't just turning away from sin, which is a good thing. It is also turning towards God in faith in Jesus Christ. Our prayer should be, Lord, I am an adopted child, not a slave to sin. I am accepted because of Christ. I've forgotten how loved, secure, rich, and free I am in Christ. Please let me be astonished by your love. So we now can rest in the assurance of our faith and the pardon of our sins. We don't need to compare ourselves to others. We don't need to compare ourselves to others based on how we think one person is bearing fruit in Christ and we're not. If your heart is broken and contrite before the Lord for your sin, you have freedom to confess and repent and be restored to your Heavenly Father who loves you. So don't listen to the lies that you've really stepped in it again. Even if you have, there is so much grace for you. Instead of fixating on your sin and your failures, focus on the cross and revel in the beauty that you are loved and adopted. Listen, church, confession is a gift. Imagine what it would feel like to not be walking around with the burdens that you're carrying because you fear how we would act if we really knew you. Repentance of sin brings peace with God and peace with the body of Christ. I want to come back to this in a minute, but I want to look at the next section of Scripture. My initial plan was to preach these two texts separately, uh, but next week is Falcon Sunday where we're feeding the entire UTPB football team and their coaches, and they're going to be attending a service with us. Uh, So I didn't know if a story about incest and prostitution and drunkenness and murder would be appropriate giving next week's audience. 
So, keeping with the theme of football, I'm calling an audible. Um, the following story is kind of a parenthetical story. Uh, it's bracketed by the sending out of the disciples and then the disciples returning. So if you've been with us in our walk through Mark, maybe you remember a guy named John the Baptist. He was considered the forerunner of Jesus. He shows up on the scene before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus' earthly public ministry. What we'll see in this next text, though, is also the forerunner in death to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Mark 6, 14 through 20. We're going to fly through these next few verses. King Herod heard of it. Uh, For Jesus, his name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So there's this guy, Herod. He's not actually a king. Mark's kind of taking some, some shots at him when he calls him a king. He had been exiled to this region of Galilee where he was basically like set up as the mayor He had some authority, but this is Roman-occupied area, and Herod is a Jew. And he wanted to be king, and he asked twice, and it ultimately got him exiled and set him up in this mockery-type position. So Mark's like, you're not really a king. This is sarcasm. So King Herod has John arrested and killed. He hears about what's going on through Jesus and Jesus' followers, and he thinks, man, John's come back to life. Others were like, no, this isn't John. He's, he's a prophet. Or he's like one of the old-time prophets from the Old Testament. Herod had this wife. She was an adulterer, as was Herod. Herod takes his brother's wife, who is also his half-sister, and makes her his own wife. All of this is against the Jewish law, and it's disgusting. And John told him, hey, bro, this isn't right. You can't, you can't marry your sister and your brother's wife. Like, this, this is not right. He spoke against their marriage, and Herod's wife, Herodias, hated John for it. But Herod was afraid of John, mostly because he knew he was wrong. But he's still trying to please his wife, even though he knew they were wrong. So he kept John in prison. But he also kept him safe because he liked listening to him. Uh, He kept him safe from his wife who wanted to, to kill him until one day. Look what happens next. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed it to her. Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So now Herodias has her opportunity to get what she wants. Herod throws himself a birthday party, and Herodias prostitutes her own daughter for the party guest. 
She goes in, a young teenage girl, dances for her drunk uncle who is also her stepdad and his party guest. This is some Jerry Springer type garbage going on here. He tells her, hey, ask anything you want. Ask me for something. Up to half of my kingdom and I will give it to you. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her, to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and, and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So she goes and asks her mom. And her mom says, I want John dead. And so that's what this young girl asked for. Instead of having integrity, King Herod cowers to the sinful desires of his wife and has John killed. So that's the story of John the Baptist. He had 18 months of obscure yet very effective public ministry, but his story doesn't really end there. So when you couple his story with that of the disciples being sent out, there's some things we can learn and some things we need to apply. Let me start with this. Believers in Jesus, Christ followers in here, your life must look different than that of the people of the world. The world may, in fact, hate you because of your relationship to Jesus, and that is to be expected. But we shouldn't live like anything other than the people of Jesus. What would it have looked like for the disciples to show up at these villages and tell them to repent, and then later we find out that the lives of the disciples look nothing like what Jesus is calling them to and what they're telling these villages to repent of. John the Baptist is in prison, but it's only because Herod is afraid of his wife. Herod knows he's innocent, and not only that, he knows he's an exceptionally good person by worldly and biblical standards, but John the Baptist's message gets tainted if he actually deserves to be in this prison, right? Christians, there is grace for your sins. But if you are consistently and habitually living a lifestyle that doesn't honor God, your message of grace and repentance to the people around you is severely compromised. When you live in a way that doesn't honor Jesus, you are not honoring Jesus. And therefore, your witness to Jesus is shaky at best. That is why confession and repentance are such a gift to us. We're called to be perfect. And because of our sin-sick hearts, we cannot be. But confession and repentance of sin communicate a humility and a humble dependence on Jesus who is perfect on our behalf. Look, following Jesus costs you something. It may cost you your friends. It may cost you your family. What we see in the ministry of John the Baptist and the apostles, it may cost you your life. But look at Herod. You can certainly do whatever you want to do. 
But in doing so, you are going to forfeit your soul in the process. Mark 10, 29 and 30 said, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Look, man, no one gets cheated for following Christ. It may not look exactly like you want it to. It may not look exactly like you think it should. You may get your head lopped off. But Christ receives your soul into his kingdom. And that is far better than anything you could hope for or imagine on this side of eternity. May the example of John the Baptist and the twelve apostles and the martyrs throughout Christianity serve as an example for us. The world may mock us for our faith. The world may seek to destroy us for our faith. The world may kill us for our faith. They may receive your head on a platter. But Jesus receives the souls of his faithful followers. I want to say this too, and then I'm going to close. If you're wanting to share your faith, if you want to learn how to share your faith, you don't really know where to start. If you're wanting to grow in the discipline of evangelism, we can help you. We want to learn and grow in that as well. So if this is you, come grab me or come grab Mark. Let's make a plan. Look, Mark and I can't be the only people in this church who are sharing the gospel, and I know we're not. But the point is that the ministry of evangelism is not reserved to the pastors of your church. You all interact with more lost people than Mark or I do. Mark and I are just hanging out in our office all the time. So... Let's get together and learn how to, to share our faith. Let's learn to grow. Let's reach this community with the gospel. But that happens through you all. Look, there is grace and peace found in confession and repentance. Herod was motivated by guilt. The Christian is motivated by love and freedom because in Christ's death and resurrection, there is freedom and forgiveness for you. Sinner, confess, repent, believe in Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins and for your shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithful witnesses. Thank you for the witnesses in Scripture. Lord, may we learn following their example Lord, to be wholly dependent upon you. Lord, will you bring conviction in these moments where conviction is needed? Lord, would you bring encouragement where encouragement is needed? Lord, I pray that you would call people to confess and repent of ongoing, secret, willful, unrepentant sin. Lord, that you would bring people to our minds that we know need the gospel, Lord, and we can pray for them in these moments. But Lord, would you encourage us, would you embolden us to go? Lord, we are needy people. We need a lot of grace. We need your forgiveness. We need your mercy to us. Lord, and we need your power to go. Lord, I pray that you would work in these next few moments. It's in your name we pray. Amen.